0: Good morning. Our scripture this morning comes from 1 John two, twelve through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, church family. It is good to see you. Uh, Trust you are doing well. We have a few in our congregation that are sick, and so thanks to the tech crew with Nate being out, and so I know Nate and his family would covet your prayers, and there's several others, so uh, I'm glad you're here today. Uh, Can you believe it? Ten, this is the countdown, ten weeks, and we're in our new building. Praise the Lord. It can't come soon enough. That's all I can say. This has been great, but it'll be so nice to have our own home. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning, and we are indeed grateful for your hand in our lives. Lord, we we know there are some this morning who aren't here because either they're, they're sick or they're caring for those that are sick, and so we lift those up to you. We ask, Lord, that you would guide us as we journey through the text. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn to 1 John, that is the the book that we are diving into this morning. 1 John chapter 2, and we are at verse 12. So, 1 John 2, verse 12. If you don't, that's in the latter part of the New Testament. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. If you're at the maps, you really went too far. So, there you are. In Fiddler on the Roof, Tevya asks Goldie, Do you love me? She says, do I what? He goes, well, do you love me? Do I love you? With our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town, you're upset, you're worn out. Go inside and go lie down. Well, and maybe it's indigestion, she claims. Goldie, I'm asking a question, do you love me? Well, you're a fool. He goes, I know, but do you love me? She says, do I love you? For 25 years I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, Given you children milk the cow. "'After 25 years, why talk about love right now? (laughs) "'Do you love me?' It's a bit of the question that governs 1 John. In fact, do do you love him? And while John is not going to ask that question in this section per se, he is going to come to this issue of, do you love the Lord, or do you love the things that are not of the Lord?' Where are you? And so in verses 12 through 14 in this section, it, it, it's a bit of a... We've been looking at if you love the Lord, if you're fellowshipping with Him, you obey, you, you love one another, and it's, it's kind of a bit of a jolt to get to verse 12. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it a glorious, magnificent parenthesis. <laughs> it's what I would expect of a pastor... Because I can, you can just see, he knows his readers well, and he's talked about obeying the Lord, loving one another, and he can see they're short-circuiting just a little bit. This is hard stuff to hear. It's, and so he needs to back up a little bit. And so he gives us, in fact, he says, three times I am writing to you, three times he'll say in these three verses, I have written to you. And it's broken down, you'll see here, into... Uh, two sets of triads three designators there's children fathers young people and then he repeats it children fathers and young people and what is he doing i'm going to argue that that what he's trying to do here is to establish who we are in christ and that is why you do what you do loving one another being obedient and it also then gives us impetus then to challenge us with whom do we really love Now, you'll notice, again, that in these three verses, it it seems he's a bit redundant, because he he mentions children, fathers, and young people, and again, he comes back to that. And scholars have debated, there are some who take this literally, that he's addressing all three age brackets within the church, I don't think so. Um, Because, we'll get to it in a minute, why don't I, I take this metaphorically. He's already called his congregation my little children. So I don't see it as an issue to call them fathers or young people. Some who take it metaphorically say, well, we're talking about levels of maturity in the Christian faith. And I don't think that's it either. I'm not going to go to a firing squad on this, but I do see it as a rhetorical device in these verses to indicate that all Christians within the church should have the innocence of a child, the strength of a young person, and the maturity of a child of a senior saint a father you say well what's the basis for that we'll get to that in a mem- minute but what i th- to give you show you my cards is what i think he's doing is what he addresses in all three categories pertain to all christians so hang on there a minute let's look then let's look at the text and he says in verse 12 i'm writing to you little children now whether you take it literal or physical it's clear Children, and in fact, he highlights it here in verse 12. He doesn't later on, but he says, You're my little children. You're ones that need some help. You're dependent on mommy and daddy. There's an innocence as well that comes with that age bracket. Uh, Fathers, which he mentions then, there in verse 13 and again in verse 14, they're older in the faith. They're characterized by spiritual maturity. That's true, seen throughout the New Testament. And he says, you've known these things from the beginning, which I would argue the beginning is when Christ came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. You've known of this gospel from day one, you who are mature. And then the young people notice twice he mentions they've overcome the evil one. They've overcome Satan, the one who has been described through Scripture as vicious, injurious, and destructive. The young people, as you notice in the text, he says that you are strong. They're noted, noted for their vitality, their exuberance. My back's been bothering me, and I, I said, oh, to be young again, right? <laughs> uh, the stuff you would used to do with the lawn, you're like, no, I don't think so. Josiah, Jenna, come here. <laughs> Kids, uh, yeah. These whippersnappers. snappers. That's the idea, right? That, that he goes. You have children who are dependent, the fathers who are mature, the young who are vibrant. And again, I would argue all of that falls with us as saints. What do I mean by that? We're we're called to have innocence and dependence as a child on the Lord. We're called to have wisdom and spiritual maturity that comes like what the fathers have as the seasoned ones. And we are called to be strong and exuberant in the faith why why do I take this interpretation because there are promises that are peppered throughout these three verses I don't want us to miss this this is key this is where I think John and his pastoral side is coming along he's already talked about what they need to be doing he can see that their eyes are crossing over "Let's, let's think about what the Lord has done for you and where you are and so he gives us several assurances and if you're taking notes this is key First of these is our sins have been forgiven. Notice this with the children, right? In verse 12, it's, it's stated there, your sins have been forgiven. A Christian is not a person who is hoping to be forgiven or works in the desire to ensure he or she has been forgiven. Rather, a Christian knows he or she is forgiven. Why? Why? Look at 1 John 1 9. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, what? Forgiving us our sins. The believer knows with certainty that forgiveness is found in Christ. Notice what John states here. Don't miss that last clause of the first verse or verse 12. Your sins have been forgiven because of what? His name. His name. <laughs> One commentator writes, to say his name It's shorthand for the whole character and work of Christ, the incarnate Son. God forgives sin, not because of anything I've done to earn it, but because of the infinite merit of our Savior. And so this morning, do you know the name? And I love John, he, he, in just the first two chapters of what we've looked at, the names of Jesus, there have been several. He says he's the son of God. He says he's the Christ or the Messiah. He is our advocate, he's our righteous one, and he is our atoning sacrifice. Do you know the name? And John says to you who are believers, you've been forgiven in this name because of the name. Well, secondly, we come to the young men. And like the young men, we, as followers of Jesus, have conquered the evil one. Again, mentioned in verses 13 and 14. Christ defeats Satan's mastery over our life. The victory's been won. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. You are no longer enslaved to sin. And I know you're saying, well, if Satan's been defeated, why is he still a problem? Why do I face temptation? And one theologian summarized it well. Our problem with Satan is not that he's too strong for us in Christ's power. Our problem with Satan is that he hates us because he has been defeated. There's the key. And this is why in 1 Peter, the the apostle tells us to resist the devil. Keep on guard. Be careful, because he's there to hinder our walk. And that's what we need to be cautious of. And so, we see here, we're called to recognize that we've been forgiven. What an assurance. In the midst of all that's going on, as John is writing, he says, you've been forgiven in Christ. Secondly, Satan's been defeated. What an assurance. And another assurance he gives is that the word of God resides in us, like it does in the young People, Notice in verse 14, the latter phrase there, and the word of God resides in you as you have conquered the evil one. The word of God via the Holy Spirit, think about what the word of God, what power it gives. It, it, It reminds us of the horrible nature of sin and all that it entails, and thus it convicts, it guides, and shows us how to conquer sin through the victory through Christ. It gives us the knowledge that, that he is victorious, Christ, over Satan. It, it gives us the power to live for Christ and all that that entails. That's why Second Timothy 3, Paul writes, every scripture is inspired God for, by God and it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. What comfort? As Paul or John is, is stepping aside for a minute, taking this, a bit of a parenthesis in, in, in the content, he says, let me remind you who you are as followers of Jesus. You've been forgiven. Satan's been defeated. The power of the word of God is in you. And boy, he says this of the fathers and the children, and that is another promise, and that is, notice in verse 13, you have known him. Think about this for a moment. If you claim Jesus Christ as your Savior, the one who placed the stars and causes the sun to rise invites you into a relationship with him. Wow. Without that invitation, it would be impossible to know him. It's he who initiated, as we've already seen in chapter one, and we have this privilege of being brought in. There are a series of what our stated is I am. In fact, there are seven of these I am statements in the Gospel of John. Remember, if you look at First John, you've got to see the Gospel of John. They, they go hand in hand. And these I am statements is where Jesus makes a declaration. I am the bread of life. I am the, the vine. You are the branches. We talked about this. But think about this. The privilege of knowing him and just dwelling on the I am statements I wrote down the one, we get to know the one who who claims to be the lamb of God. What does that mean? That means we have one who provides a solution for our sin, who grants us forgiveness when we confess it and frees us from guilt. (laughs) Secondly, we have one who, who claims to be the door. In other words, it provides access. And we know in the book of Hebrews, we have access to the very throne room of God. I am who claims to be the good shepherd. You struggling this morning? Or think about this. The shepherd provides comfort, direction, and care. The, the shepherd is there. He didn't say he take away the, the valleys, but he's there in the valley. And what does he promise? To sustain us, protect us in those valleys, which is great. The I am is the one who's the bread of life, the true vine, and that is providing substances. The one who's the living water provides refreshment. And the one who claims he's the way, the truth, and the life provides direction and purpose. We get to know him. (laughs) And John goes, and of anyone to say this and understand what this all means is one who's walked very close with our Savior. He referred to himself as the beloved disciple, not being arrogant. He's just amazed that God would lavish his grace on him. But John was there time and time again, a front row seat to all that God has done. But he's the one who laid in Jesus' breast, the intimacy. And he's, you get the same. Remember what he said in chapter one? The fellowship that we have, John says, with the, the son and the father, you also get to participate in. I mean, we shouldn't be the frozen chosen. Looking like you sucked on prune juice. <laughs> huh? We have so much to rejoice over, don't we? Uh, Amen, yes. Because John is saying listen, however you take the children and fathers and young people, the the bottom line is these assurances fit all believers. You've died to sin, you've been forgiven. the enslavement of sin. You've died to Satan's authority over your life. The word of God gives you the power to live, and in the process, you get to know this one who claims, I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, it's a great read. If you've not read it, it's a classic in Christendom. It's worthy of reading Knowing God by Packer. He says, We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life is disappointing and unpleasant for those who do not know God. I mean, just look at the news. People are trying all sorts of things to try to bring happiness and peace, whether it's political parties whether it's some type of social program, eating only Wheaties, I don't know, right? This is the one who has invited us in. It's no wonder Martin Lloyd-Jones called these three verses the glorious, magnificent parenthesis. <laughs> John breaks from the call for obedience and the need to love others to remind us of the glorious assurance given to all who call upon the name of the Lord. If that doesn't make your socks roll up and down, he's not done, but that's good. Now he says to all the believers, do not love the world. It's a negative demand of Christian love, isn't it? World will be used six times in these three verses. And I know that often world, cosmos, in the New Testament, in the Greek, can mean the orderly system, can refer to the the planets, that's the world. It can refer to all human beings. But in this context, it's clear, and it's a way that it also can be used, and it can refer to organized system that is rebellious against God. This is the world that John is referring to. He mentions it in 7.7 7 of John's gospel. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I am testifying about it, that its deeds are evil. And so John says, if you love the world, this system organized and overseen by Satan, we got a problem. Now, knowing that, let me give a few caveats because I've heard this text taken out of context. John is not calling for a monastic separation. He's not asking us to separate from the world. That is people. We are to be the salt and light of the world the salt only hangs out in the salt shaker, it's not going to be very useful. Or if it only hangs out in the cupboard with all the other salts, the Himalayan salts, the coarse salt, I don't know, uh, you have no use either. We must have the courage to both engage our culture and stand against it. That's what Erwin Lutzer wrote, We Will Not Be Silent. Great book. It's speaking into the church. We have to be the salt and the light in this world John is not also stating that the physical things of this world are to be avoided. I've met believers that the mark of spirituality is by the poverty level in which they claim they live in. Mm-mm. Careful. 1 Timothy 6, he gives us richly all things to enjoy. That's important. Now there's a balance here. We'll get to that in a minute, but It's all right. He's given us his world to enjoy. You can have a steak every now and then. That's all right. You don't have to eat hot dogs every day. So that's the idea. And then third, sometimes this is taken out of context, and that believers are not to be engaged in the world politically or in social activities. Careful, even the Lord ordained government. And I love our missions conference that's coming up October 8th and 15th. We've got two fabulous speakers. Matt Barnes is coming. He's the director of public servants prayer in Indianapolis. And then Dr. Thomas Crago, who is the academic vice president at Cedarville. Both have done extensive work on the believer in the public square. What is our role? How are we to be involved? I love that. Uh, I don't Often highlight this, but I love that the mayor of Westfield is a member of our church. Uh, Shout out to Andy! I'm so thankful that Pastor Michael volunteers as a chaplain to our fire department and our police department. We need to be in the world, but not of it. And there's a fine line, isn't there? That's not what John though is talking about here. He's talking about, in fact, he specifies it even here in the context. the 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 satanic system he's talking about here he will get to in verse 16. But he's saying, if it is the world, we're not to love it. You're to love, in fact, notice what he says here. If you don't love the world or the things in the world, if you love the world, you can't love the Father. The two are antagonistic. They cannot coexist as objects of our love. Both are vying for the answer, do you love me? right? Something like that. A fiddler on the roof. One's a fool! (laughs) You can't love both. Now, here's where he defines what the world is and what that entails when it comes to loving the things of the world. In fact, most theologians would argue this is the three categories of sin. Notice what he says in verse 16. All that is of the world... Again, that satanic system, and then he lays these out. One is the desires of the flesh. This speaks of any and every craving which serves as a rebellion against God. We might use the word lust, and I I love how this one theologian defines it. Lust is the various cravings of fallen human natures pursued in the interest of self in self-sufficient independence of God, I know it's a little wordy, but you get the idea. We often think of sexual. This is much broader than that, and that's what John is trying to highlight to us. Lust is an inordinate affection for others or things, or desires. I mean, let's face it, desires are good. God's given us desires. You hunger, you thirst, you sleep, long for intimacy. But when the flesh takes over, the danger comes because when they become lust, the hunger becomes gluttony, thirst becomes drunkenness, sleep becomes laziness, intimacy becomes immorality. We are not to make provision for the lust of the flesh, are we? Romans 13, Paul writes, so then we must lay aside the works of darkness. Interesting he'd use that motif because that's big with John and put on the weapons of light. Let us live decently as in the daylight, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in discord and jealousy. Instead, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to arouse its desires. So John says, don't love the world. Why? Because in this is the desire of the flesh. There's also the desire, he states, of the eyes. Now, they overlap. But what we're talking about here is anything that I view. Psalm 119, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. We've studied the life of David. Remember 2 Samuel 11? What does it tell us? David is walking out on the veranda. He looks out. It says he looks and sees Bathsheba. (laughs) Because of Matthew 5, it says when whoever looks on a woman inappropriately is committing adultery even if they don't connect (laughs) oh be careful little eyes what you see remember the little ditty when you were a kid oh be careful little eyes what you see for the father up above is looking down and i love that line in love so be careful little eyes what you see desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes And then that translates the the third category as arrogance produced by material possessions. This one centers on pride, on boasting. I mean, think about it. The first two are inward issues. This one's an outward one. This is what I've got. Here we are. Whether that's one's birth, one's family, one's business, one's gifts, one's accomplishments— You've been, well, I used to go to these conferences for faculty. It was nauseating at times. <laughs> you had these people trying to flaunt their stuff and how many books they've written and all they're doing. I'm like, oh, yay for you. I'm not impressed. I don't think the Lord is either. <laughs> Careful. Such arrogance expresses human self sufficiency and independence of God. And so, John says, don't love any of that. That is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and that which provides arrogance and the things that you do. So reflecting on these three categories in light of the church, big C, not little c, but big C, it's easy for us over here to shake our heads and go, mm-hmm, that's right, that's awful. Preach it. Ugh. And yet, the grave danger facing the church today is not looking to Jesus. They're looking over here, wagging their tongues, but they're not looking to the Lord. And that's what John just tried to do in verses 12 through 14, was to point us to Christ so that we can see how horrible this is in light of our own lives, not because of others. And sadly, I would argue the church today is quickly embracing elements of the world, We lower the standards, we rewrite the rules, we revise our theology to worship a God who fits our mold, who agrees with us. And then we wonder why the church has little influence in the world. It's because the world has influence in you. That's the danger. It Reminds me of the church of Sardis in Revelation. When Christ warned them, your garments are stained with the the things of the world. Careful. Blessed, Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So to the church at large, I say, careful, (laughs) take heed. You can't, do you love me? You can't love this and that and think you're fine. It doesn't work. Let me take it to a personal level. A few cautions, I think, is just three. Those who love the Father should not be loving aspects of the world. It is a disrespect to all he's done. John knew what he was doing in verses 12 through 14. He's highlighted all that God has done, who we are in Christ, and then you can just hear him say, why would you love that when you have this? And so it's a warning, is it not, to all of us? A lack of wholehearted love, here's a second, for the Father results in indifference. And Elie Wiesel, a prolific writer and Holocaust survivor, certainly not a believer, I think he was more agnostic of anything, but he makes a profound statement. He says, the opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. (laughs) If you are not wholeheartedly loving the Lord, pursuing fast him, Odds are, you're loving something in the world. Time and time again, I've met with people, well, you know, I've been struggling in this area, and you ask how they're doing spiritually, the tire's off. I mean, They've been driving down on the rim for a long time. Here's the third. Reflect on what the world has done for you versus what the Father, this goes back to the first, but via the Son, has accomplished for you also what is it the world ultimately provides? Like, it, it, yeah, there's pleasure and sin for a season, but it's temporary, and, and John's gonna get to that. I was thinking about all of this here and all that God has done. Can you imagine, you got a, a guy who's a new homeowner, he moves in beside you, and he whacks down all the climbing roses on the fence that was next to you. And the previous owner, I mean, they took care of those roses. They were beautiful. Instead, he's got poison ivy growing up on the fence. <laughs> and you go over and you say, hey, why'd you cut down those roses? And he knows you got poison ivy growing here. He goes, I love poison ivy. It's wonderful. It's natural. You don't have to take care of it. It grows really fast. In the fall, the leaves turn. It's gorgeous. Well, but don't you, aren't you allergic to poison ivy? Oh, yeah. It's okay, though. After all the Lord has done, you chop down the roses? And go over here? No. John gives us another reason. Verses 12 through 14 are one reason why we shouldn't love the world. Verse 17 is the last. And he says, And the world is passing away with all its desires, but the person who's done in the will of God remains forever. John is reminding his readers of the temporary character of material life, an eternity that awaits, and while it's not directly stated, it's there, and that God is going to judge the world. Think about it. In other words, all that we crave, all that we covet with our eyes, all that we flaunt, it's going to pass away. Years ago, I took a mowing job for the summer in high school. Some of you have done that. And part of it was we mowed a cemetery, which was very interesting. It was a pain because you had all the stones to go around. Yeah, but we did it. People were dying to get in there, so I thought I would help out. That was <laughs> no, bad. You expected one pastoral joke, right? And I noticed. That, in the first one section of the cemetery, there was these glorious tombstones. They were nicely polished. There was some beautiful epitaph of all the accomplishments and who they are, and someone had flowers stuck there, and you'd see occasionally a visitor coming to weep over the tombstone. That was beautiful. But then you'd have other tombstones. In the far back of the cemetery, you could hardly read the name it had weathered over time certainly the accomplishments all that was down at the bottom forget it it wasn't there sometimes the stones were broken no flowers no visitors that's what this world has to offer and if that's it what a bummer (laughs) and john is warning us he's really warning us of two dangers first of all the wealth the learning the social status you fill in the blank anything that this world can give it's going to vanish eventually it'll be a a weathered tombstone that no one even knows about maybe some genealogy genealogical society has recorded it but for the most part it's it's done and he gives us a second danger here in the text the danger is that the cravings the coveting the bragging one will forfeit. Notice what he says. They're going to forfeit the will of God, which remains forever. Ephesians 5 says, Therefore consider carefully how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, taking advantage of every opportunity because the days are evil. For this reason, do not be foolish, but be wise for understanding what the Lord's will is. For those here... The children, the fathers, and the young people. With all the assurances, we have an opportunity to have fellowship with the Lord, but also to be a part of his will. Wow. <laughs> this is, and you say, well, how do I know what the Lord's will is? Well, turn to Romans 12. Keep your finger here, but turn, turn to the book of Romans. Romans 12. And as you do, I'm going to give you one quick word to knowing the will of the Lord, and that is surrender. There's books written on knowing the will of God. There's series on knowing the will of God. There's 12 steps, 10 steps, 7 steps. I don't know. You fill it in. The bottom line, it's not that difficult. It's found here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. There it is. Surrender. As a sacrifice, alive, holy, pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service, by the way. Do not be conformed to this present world, and he's using it in the same context as John is, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that, here it is, you may test and approve what is the will of God. There it is. If he loved you enough to make certain you are forgiven, that Satan has been defeated, that you can know him. If he's done all of these things, I can assure you, he wants you to do his will more than you do. So he's not playing hide and go seek. Surrender your life, be busy serving, and his will will be very evident. It's that easy. And if you don't like that, and you don't find that to be true, I'll give you your money back. But this is, the scriptures are clear. This is what he desires. And go back to 1 John. Look, in light of that, look at 1 John and what he says here. He states, but the person who does the will of God, well, who's the person who does the will of God? This is the one in verse 15 who loves the Father. There it is. They go hand in hand. The, the fellowship that comes with the Father and the Son brings us in and allows us for him to lead in our lives. We renew the mind through submission, that is being in the word, through prayer and fellowship with the saints. If you truly love the Lord and you understand what the world affords, you will not want to live on substitutes. Mr. Pibb is not Dr. Pepper. Chancy or Clancy Chips are not Lay's. JoJo's are not Oreos, sorry. They're substitutes. The growing Christian finds what this world has to offer less and less appealing. Why he or she is too interested in loving the Lord and doing his will. Second Corinthians 4, it's a powerful text. You can inscribe this on your tombstone. Therefore, we do not despair, even if our physical body is wearing away. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light suffering is producing for us eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Nothing over here. There's there's nothing that you could ever desire, the flesh desires through the eyes, or even brag about that compares to the glory that waits. He says, because we are not looking at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen, for what can be seen is temporary, but what can not be seen is eternal. That's what John's saying. Don't love the world, love the Father and all that comes. Why? Because of who you are. Why? Because that will not last. It will not last. Long after the world system With its godless materialism, its proud philosophies, and an egocentric intellectualism have been forgotten. Long after the evil one has been cast into the lake of fire, long after there's a new heavens and a new earth, God's faithful servants will remain. (laughs) Isn't that great? Sharing in the glory of dwelling in the fellowship with the Lord forever and ever and ever. And that's where God's people say, amen. Amen. If you would, bow your head and close your eyes. I dare say there's a few in this room where, yeah, you've, you've made the profession in Christ, but you have been toying too long with the things of the world. It's the internet, perhaps it's the tongue, and you're saying, David, today I am going to take a stand. And I, I am going to cling to the things that are of the Lord. If you would like me to pray with you, just you can raise your hand right now. Say, yeah, pray for me. I, I, I mean business. Yep. Yes, all over. There's a prayer. Thank you. There's a prayer that Erwin Lutzer gives in his book, We Will Not Be Silenced. It's at the end of the book. I don't normally do this, but I'm gonna read his prayer as closing for us. It is so powerful and so fitting. He says, Father, give us renewal honestly as we ask you to search our hearts. Let us resolve to live fully for your glory. Suffering as need to be proof of your faithfulness in our lives. Let us not fall into sin of self-righteousness. Let us always temper truth with love and a listening ear. Let us not allow Satan a foothold in our lives and may our sins be severely dealt with through repentance and accountability. Let us be among the remnant that has not soiled their garments but will walk with you in white. Until that day, Let us be faithful for your glory and bring as many as possible with us as we travel the narrow road. And let us hold up our Savior so that the world may see him as their great hope. Thank you for giving us this privilege. Lord, I echo the words of Erwin Lutzer in his book. Father, thank you. Thank you for all that you've done for us John rehearsed those in verses 12 through 14. And so, Father, it's our desire in the question, do you love me? That May that be said of us. Lord, may we not cling to the things of this world, but hold fast to you. What a day, Lord, when the struggles of this life, the battles that we face will be done and we will be in your presence. Until then, may we be found faithful as children of the light. In Jesus' name, amen.